On the Empire Podcast this week, we head to Japan with the Wolverine and welcome Hugh Jackman and director James Mangold to London. We have a good laugh with the current king of American indie, Noah Baumbach, about Francis Ha. And we look at all this week's news, reviews and questions, as is traditional. Hello, Pod. I'm Helen O'Hara, and you're very welcome to the Empire Podcast. I am once again cosplaying as Chris Hewitt in order to host the podcast in his absence, which it turns out was kind of unnecessary because this is an entirely oral medium, so you can't even see my outfit. Anyway, uh, joining me this week is a man who recently got caught bad dancing by that coolest of cats, Samuel L. Jackson. So tell us, Ali Plum, is getting a funny look from Nick Fury a badge of honour or the ultimate shame? I'm pretending that it didn't happen. It did. Next up is a man who held down the fort here while the entire office sloped off to San Diego and who received nothing for his trouble but a net full of Swedish fish, which at least makes a nice change from Swedish films. It's Phil de Semlin. Hiya. In Swedish. Yeah. Pastel fish car. Yum, 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 yum. Really? Yes. And last but not least is Nick de Semlin, who as Empire's Reviews Editor faces the awesome task of trying to find someone willing to watch films like Scary Movie 5 and their deleted scenes. Hello, Nick. I refuse to believe anything was deleted from Scary Movie 5. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a depressing thought. I think everything is in there, pretty much. Yeah. 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 Do you want to do it? No, I'm, I'm busy that week. I'm washing my hair. You guys? I'll do it. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. I should do more of my admin live on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> As ever, we kick off with your questions, comments, and death threats. At Ham of Grey asks, how do we solve a problem like Wonder Woman? Now, this obviously uh, comes in the context of Superman versus Batman is a thing that is happening in the world that's building up. The plan is to a tentative Justice League movie in 2017. And for that, you need Wonder Woman. I've got a bit of background on this because I think this is a fascinating question that quite a few people have thought about. But just so you know, the current state of play on where Wonder Woman has been both in TV and in film. Previously in the 70s, Linda Carter was in a TV show. There were two TV shows, in fact. One was called something like The New Original Wonder Woman, and then it was The New Adventures of Wonder Woman. So it was a precursor, if you will, to The New Adventures of Superman. Uh, So that was between, I think mid 70s and then in 74 there was Kathy Lee Crosby who was in a TV movie uh, she didn't wear the costume she looked nothing like her and displayed no superhuman powers in any fashion right it's safe to say that TV movie was a bit of a disaster but intriguingly the first incarnation of Wonder Woman to hit the big screen ever will be next year for the Lego movie because you will see Wonder Woman oh. as a minifig swinging her rope and doing her thang. It is exciting. I spoke it to is. the directors Phil Lord and Chris Miller and they are very proud that they are the first people to bring Wonder Woman to the big screen and they promise you that she will look like Wonder Woman which as far as the previous incarnations have gone is a very impressive thing. Can somebody else elaborate upon what her powers are and what she is as a character? She is kind of essentially pretty much as powerful as Superman. One of my issues with the DC Universe is that they're all godlike, uh, which makes it slightly difficult to, to fit them all together, with the exception of Batman and arguably the Flash. You know, Green Lantern, Martian Manhunter, Wonder Woman, Superman are all godlike levels of power. So it, it makes it a little bit difficult to come up with something that challenges them all. And I think that's one of the problems that Wonder Woman has historically had. They had a, a also, there was an attempt to reboot the TV show recently, which didn't come off. It's um, 2011. There was a TV yeah. movie with Adrienne Palicki, yeah, who you may have seen recently in G.I. Joe 2. She's, she's kick-ass and everything. And, you know, they they had an idea with that show, but it just... It didn't connect at all. I honestly think uh, Wonder Woman is an interesting character for me because she is a character who, even in the comic books, has always struggled to find a decent story. Um, literally, despite the fact that you know her powers have been established as pretty godlike from day one, she was the Justice League secretary. 
uh, for quite some time because, you know, girls, it was it was olden days. She's got a weird origins as the creation of somebody who was a little bit into, well, bondage, um, as you can kind of tell from the comics and their, uh, <laughs> their emphasis on getting tied up with a lasso all the time. What's her lasso? Is it a magic lasso? Yes, it makes people tell the truth when she catches them in it. She was created from clay by, by a goddess, essentially. She's kind of a, of a Greek goddess. And she has bracelets and her uniform is kind of magic as well. I haven't come across that, but I may have missed that incarnation. Is it ungallant to ask how old she is? As old as her tongue and slightly older than her teeth. Actually, no, probably the same age because she was created from clay. But she's been around for about 60, 70 years. That's what's weird, is that because we haven't really seen a comic book arc that is worthy of its own movie, that's probably why we haven't seen it done well on TV. I mean, you look at the Avengers, the way Joss is talking about making Avengers 2 on one specific arc, but there are so many great Avengers arcs that he can pick and choose. Mm. Wonder Woman, you're like, well, how about the one where she whips someone or fights Cheetah? It's slightly it's, lame, dare yeah, I say it's it. it's difficult. I think, I think, you know, there have been some interesting... Uh, stories in the comics but mostly they've been riffing on who she is and given that in a film you probably have to establish who she is first that's a little bit difficult to make work on the big screen um some of the most interesting stories have been conflicts with her people so she comes from the island of Themyscira I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly um where uh it's basically all women um there are no men and they have slightly Amazonian attitudes to men which can kind of create some tension so there's there's interesting things that you could do I would have loved to have seen the, the Joss Whedon version that he uh, was working on um, back in the late noughties but uh, it sadly twas not to be so I just hope somebody somewhere figures her out and does her properly it's that so thank you for that ham of grey at Nathaniel Smith asks who is the best cinematic royal if TV is allowed it's Hugh Laurie in Blackadder 3 now this obviously refers to uh, some kid born this week called Prince George um, who, do, who do we like? We like King Richard the Lionheart from Robin Hood Robin Hood was my favourite <laughs> Prince of Thieves is this no, version? No. no, 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 no Disney Disney all the way okay. I, I grew up loving Robin Hood watched it over and over and over on VHS and he just rocks up at the end everything is hunky-dory people get married happy days that's the kind of king I want. Also Sean in Prince of Thieves. Yeah, that's an interesting one because uh, Richard the Lionheart, to the best of my knowledge, never even went to Scotland um, and probably spoke French rather than English and yet has a Scottish accent. You also wasn't a fox. <laughs> that's also true. So true. Friends with a stork. Mufasa from Lion King, just to keep it animated. Uh, he is a thoroughly awesome king. He is. He dispenses wise words like it's candy from a machine. Uh, and you've also got King Harold from Shrek. <laughs> Mine are mostly French, as you probably expect. Okay. Isabella Gianni in La Reine, Mar- La Reine Margot. La Reine Margot is a brilliant film. It's a brilliant film, and she was brilliant in it and very beautiful. Um, I, I would say, though, um, Henry of Navarre from the same film, um, Danielle Otoy, her husband. Also. Yeah. Vincent Cassel in, I don't know if the Duc d'Anjou is part of the French royal family or just <laughs> the aristocracy, but in, in Elizabeth, the cross-dressing with his, with his emissary, Eric Cantona is a powerful double act. <laughs> he is, uh, he is, I believe, uh, like second in line to the throne. They're perfect. Oh, there you go. As queen, presumably. <laughs> yes. Um, and obviously Olivier as, as Henry V with the rocking the, the, the bowl haircut, taking it to France. Olivier serving. over Branagh. Yeah, I think so. Although, you know, people may disagree with that. King Kong. After many years as Prince Kong. <laughs> the Fisher King. The Fisher King. Yeah, that's good too. Is he a natural king? No. Okay. At Henrik Brains asks, what's the best food you've tried after watching it in a movie? It's got to be the boot after the gold rush. 
that was one tasty shoe. <laughs> Om, nom, and nom. I, I've always meant to try Twinkies after seeing them, you know, in every 80s movie ever, n- most notably Ghostbusters. And, uh, and, and they're horrible. So, you know, <laughs> they're not good, are they? Something. They're really yeah. not nice. Really not nice. The Swedish fish feature in any movies? Persona. There you go. Um, I bought some Stay Puffed uh, marshmallow. I don't think I tried it. I think I gave it away as a gift. Mm, I, I tried that. It's the, that's the caffeinated marshmallows, isn't it? Yeah. They are. They were okay. I couldn't do that because I found the Stay Puft marshmallow man the freakiest thing in the world when I was growing up. I couldn't eat him. Did you? But I could eat beans after Blazing Saddles. <laughs> Thank you for nodding them too recently. Timpani, I've always wanted to eat from from Big Night. The, oh, the yes. big um, yeah. Italian pie thing. Yeah, the layers of pasta, layers of pasta and, and egg and, and meat and sausage. And yet to encounter it. That's in an amazing, that's a really good answer, I've got to say. Dining situation. Timpani. Everyone go and eat that now. I actually made the saffron sauce from no reservations. We did a feature on the website with best movie recipes, including timpani, but that seemed like it had a lot of steps and I got a bit scared and, and didn't make that. But I did make the saffron sauce and it was very nice. So well done, Catherine Zeta-Jones and Erin Eckhart. Have you tried the ratatouille? I have that recipe as well, but it's, again, it's a four-hour preparation time. And so I've been I've been waiting for the right moment. We had Eckhart talking about that in the podcast not that long ago. He had a very long answer about that he, he had to learn to make sauces for that film like a boot camp <laughs> a gold rush boot camp gold rush boot camp <laughs> exactly and um, yeah we went very long long answer about the perfect how to make the perfect sauce but wow. to actually answer this question is in what is the best food you ever tried after watching a movie and this is in you've seen the film and you rush out and uh, eat it as quickly as you can is shawarma I'd never eaten shawarma and then at the end of Avengers you see them all silently eating shawarma and kind of picking stuff out of their teeth and I went and, and, and ate it and it is it's just delicious there's so much of it have you never eaten shawarma? Have you never been drunk before? Have I never been drunk before? I don't get drunk in North London, some posh area of Hampstead, and going, I could murder shawarma. <laughs> doesn't happen to me. Oh. It's a kebab all the way. Okay. I sent uh, James White. When Avengers came out on DVD, I sent him to the actual restaurant that they eat at, and it's become kind of Avengers-themed shawarma restaurant, in a way. Shawarma-rama. Shawarma-rama. Uh, and actually, the difficult one to get food-wise is after watching Hannibal, I couldn't get Ray Liotta's brain. Anywhere. Really? Anywhere. Like, honestly. Did you try Whole Foods? Actually, now you say it, I feel a bit stupid. Should have gone there. <laughs> Morrison's wasn't good enough. All right. On to our first interview of the week now. Thank you for your questions. Uh, Noah Bombach is one of the biggest names in American indie cinema these days with films like The Squid and the Whale, the critically acclaimed Greenberg and um, Madagascar 3. Anyway, uh, now he's directed Francis Ha, which is written with and starring Greta Gerwig as a 20-something whose aimless life becomes chaotic after her boyfriend dumps her and her best friend asks her to move out. Bombach stopped by recently to talk about the film and Phil and Ali here asked him all about it. We are very pleased to welcome Noah Bombach to the Empire Podcast booth um, to talk to us about his new movie, Francis Ha, amongst other things. Um, But that seems like a nice place to start because we both watched it recently and thoroughly enjoyed it. And... um, well, first of all, I just wonder where you got the, the title from, because there's such a beautiful kind of grace note at the end of the movie when you find out why it's called what it's called. Would it be giving away too much to answer that question? Well, I'll try not to give too much away, but titles are often a challenge, I suppose. But, but in, in the case of this movie, it, it felt like her name should be in the title. And there is a movie called Francis uh, from, I guess, the early 80s of Jessica Lange about Francis Farmer, and I felt like... I didn't want to take their title, you know, and having had a movie where 
my first movie actually they they took the title uh, there's a Will Ferrell soccer movie that has the same title as my first movie mm-hmm. and so um, the ending of the movie in some ways was a way to rationalize the title um, so without giving away the ending of the movie I guess I won't say much more than that but but I'm glad because it was sort of the challenge of finding a, you know an, an a title that was unique to this movie also helped us create a satisfying ending to the movie. It does, exactly that. Just on what you were saying before, has anyone ever come up to you and said, I didn't know you loved soccer so much? <laughs> you <laughs> made this... <laughs> I, I mean, I've had various... This is kicking and screaming, obviously. Kicking and screaming, yes. I've had various um, different, I guess, remarks made about it one way or the other. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I think we'll... Will Ferrell's great, so I'm just lucky that that turned to be turned out to be like one of his only not good movies. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've, all, I mean, talking about titles, you've also had one of your movies kind of name a band. Obviously, I'm thinking about Noah and the Whale. Mm-hmm. Have you ever? Are you a fan of their music? I think I was in I was in Los Angeles, what, however many years ago, and listening to satellite radio. And, you know, like you'd, you'd kind of sometimes glance up at the I was in a car. So, you know, sometimes glance up when you hear something you like to sort of see what it is. And, um, you know, sometimes the whole title's not quite there, you know, like or they or, or it sort of floats by or that you, they're like. But it said Noah and the Whale. And I, I couldn't tell if that was the name of the song or the band. And I, I and it seemed specific enough that, you know, but but, you know, in, in that kind of that sort of. Truman Show way. I didn't want to just assume that the, wor- the world was conforming to my narcissism, uh, uh, but in this case, it was. <laughs> and has continued to do so. <laughs> no, that was the first and last time. Damn. On the topic of music, I'm a big Loudon Wainwright fan, uh-huh. and I was wondering whether the inclusion of the swimming song in Squid and the Whale was off your own bat, or somebody had suggested it to you. How did you How did you come to that song? Yeah, and I also used Lullaby off that same record. Um, that's on the same record, I think, isn't it? I um, think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, my idea. I mean, I, I was listening to a lot of a lot of Loudon Wainwright around the time I was trying to uh, get Squid and the Whale made, and because his music themes very much fit Squid and the Whale's themes. Yeah, I mean, I was using. There's a lot of Burt Janch in that movie too, and um, not that they're that similar, but they, but they are kind of. I mean, they're sort of that. They're kind of singer-songwriters with a lot of personality and you feel you very much feel them in the songs and I was sort of that kind of post-Dylan music I think felt right for for the movie and and the swimming song in particular in its own way not dissimilar to Modern Love which is in Francis Ha the David Bowie song and that it's the happy sad quotient is kind of perfect you know and and but the lyrics in in uh, the swimming song I find so sad I mean it really makes connects with something kind of deep inside me that I'm not even I don't know that I I, I, I always have access to it except when I'm listening to that song <laughs> and and I so didn't grow up in that kind of I mean, it, it's sort of more probably connected to kind of 50s sort of... Westchester County. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it but it does, it, it reminds me, emotionally connected me to my childhood. So I felt like, you know, it would it would feel right at the end of the movie. And you've got David Bowie, as you say, in Francis Hart. Now, I can only presume that he doesn't give it away for free. Was this one of those movies where half the budget was paying the record company? No, actually, he... Did and everybody involved with the movie, uh, musically involved with the movie, Paul McCartney as well, and we have a T Rex song and a Harry mm. Nilsson song and um, Hot Chocolate and uh, and then all the 
the score that we borrowed from George Delarue's estate, and you know that, and everybody uh, except the Rolling Stones, who I had put in an early cut of the movie, actually the cut that went to festivals uh, in in the last fall. Everyone agreed to, you know, to, to I mean, essentially give it to us. I mean, they gave it to us for deferments, and it was a very really generous of spirit and you know exactly they're all as cool as you want them to be in that instance the rolling stones on the other hand not so much <laughs> still still want money <laughs> you but now you can't afford to go and see them in concert right <laughs> yeah i probably yeah I still probably would have been cheaper to license it for a movie than go see them in concert <laughs> i am amazed and i discovered this only recently that you were part of the madagascar 3 thing were you in any way involved with the polka dot polka dot earworm that has been walking around many people's brains since it came out? I think um, I, I give Chris Rock really all the credit for that one. <laughs> what about Crackalackin to the Macalackin? Is that another Chris Rockism? <laughs> I think so. I mean, Crackalackin, I feel like, preceded me even because I think it's in the other two. So they. The, um, but probably Chris Rock's too. Uh, you came in to do a to do a script rewrite at one point, didn't you? And and there's there's things in this film that, that for one thing, the opening is in black and white, and it's a kind of a Salvador Dali surrealist thing. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a Lucy in the Sky with diamonds. There's some weird stuff smuggled into a kids movie that we all really sort of responded to. Mm-hmm. Were you responsible for those things? The, the thing that's good about those movies when they work is that they're. I mean, in, in the way that they do, they they tend to do them. There is that they're very collaborative, and and you work over a long period of time. So it it almost becomes difficult to trace. Like I've been reminded of things even by DreamWorks people that I contributed that I don't remember contributing. So you know, yeah, I was a part of all of that, but you know, it, it really feeding off each other. So then it's 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 hard to know then whose is what. It's the collaborative process, I guess, but you'd want to detangle because you, you, not that long ago, became a father. Mm-hmm. If it was me and I was sitting on the sofa with my son watching Madagascar 3 in years to come, I'd want to go, that zebra just said my words. <laughs> <laughs> well, at, but, that, at that point, I'll just take credit for all of it. <laughs> as soon as he laughs, you go, my bit. Yeah. We're not the first to, to cite your love of the French New Wave and the film, you use the music from Truffaut's 400 Blows mm-hmm. in this film. Um, and your son is named after one of the leading lights of the French New Wave. Right. Did, uh, do you have any, if you have another child, do you have any second choice? <laughs> well, I, he, yeah, I mean, it, he is named Romer. I, I reading titles off the sh- DVD shelf, and, and, <laughs> and, and the thing about Romer is that it's a sweet name, like, for kids. So it, it, it you know, it, it was less as, oh, I want to name my son after this director who I, think is great which is true but it was also like oh i like how this name sounds for a kid so um you know chabral is harder to name your kid <laughs> jodorowsky yeah jodorowsky. might have like got well, some that playground. one almost works because it's you know <laughs> so, so wild but now we surely could be under pressure to you know not necessarily be a massive michael bay fan when he grows up, potentially. Right. Well, <laughs> well he's probably I, under pressure anywhere. I yeah, I, you know, I think I'm sure at that point it'll be unavoidable. <laughs> we'll be, he'll be president or something. Who knows? <laughs> We've got to let you go. But I just wondered if you remember which take you used at that 42 take bathroom scene, which is uh, one of my favorite scenes of the year so far. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, the I think Greta 
said it. Um, I think I think we ended up using take twenty nine, um, uh, but I did use for for the a couple cuts. I had take forty two in there, and then I swapped it out because I, I just felt like the sort of calibration between Mickey and Greta in, in forty two was not quite right for the movie. So I, I there was something twenty nine. Uh, was sort of equally good, and but also I thought like it, it fit the movie at that, you know, what I needed at that just that moment. Maybe a deleted scene for the DVD. <laughs> no, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Sure, thank you guys. Okay, movie news time now. What have you got, Phil? A story about the Freddie Mercury movie that's been germinating for a while with Sasha Baron Cohen driving it. Really, he'd been in talks with a number of directors to get this project together. Fincher looked at it, I think Tom Hooper as well as a possibility and he brought in Peter Morgan who's obviously you know, something of a, a specialist of, um, of scripting biopics. The problem with it now is that the remaining members of Queen want something different from what he wants. I think he wanted, obviously Freddie Mercury was a man who was not impartial to a bowl or two of cocaine and um, some, some high living. I don't think that's exactly the story that Brian May Badger Man, the other guys had in mind for, for, for Freddie Mercury. I think they wanted something a little bit more PG orientated, perhaps, than what Sacha Baron Cohen was looking for. So Baron Cohen has left the project, which I guess sets it back to almost square one with no Freddie Mercury attached. So we have to find a Freddie Mercury. We have to find one fast because I think it could be an interesting film. I would worry about how on earth you can make that a 12A. I mean, he, by his own, I think everyone knows that had a interesting. <laughs> Interesting he lived hard. extracurricular mm. life and was, you know, the ultimate showman. Could be a fascinating story. You know, they were they were the most kind of decadent superstar rock band for a while back then um, in a fairly hedonistic time. So it could be a great film. Could be really interesting. I don't think it's a 12A film necessarily. So that could be a, that could be a stumbling block. Some of the bookies have come up with a list of, of possibilities for who could replace him. Okay, who do they think? Um, starting with <clears throat> five to one, Michael Sheen. Interesting. Six to one, Johnny Depp. Ten to one, shared Ewan McGregor, Hugh Jackman, James Franco. I think they just looked on Google. <laughs> Jim Carrey, Michael Fassbender, Dominic West. And he goes all the way down to 200 to one, Elton John. 500 to one, John Terry and Luis Suarez. Right. Th- those seem like Together. bad bets. <laughs> Together. <laughs> exactly. It's a kind of Muppet Man scenario. Yeah. It's one of them standing These on the are some shop. of the worst suggestions ever. 33 to one is Nicolas Cage. This is such a load of rubbish. If they, don't make a mo- if they make a movie that is about Freddie Mercury and it isn't Sacha Baron Cohen, for me that's insane. As soon as it was suggested yeah. that Sacha Baron Cohen was up for it, we know he's got the pipes. He looks the part. I was going to say, he looks insanely close to Mercury. He's really. got that swarthiness. I mean, but fascinatingly about this story, the reason why Brian May and Roger Taylor et al. can say, no, you can't make this movie, isn't because they own the rights to his life. Of course they don't. That's kind of a public property. There have been plenty of biographies about him, Mr. Mercury. It's because they own the rights to the songs. And by saying, no, you can't use our songs, that invalidates the film. Because they know, as well as everyone else, that part of the package of making this film is seeing whoever plays Freddie Mercury, please be Sasha Baron Cohen, sing these songs, belting them out. Then you get all the tie-in albums and all that greatest hits come out again. These are also hard songs to sing. You know, now regular listeners may know that Empire is partial to a bit of karaoke, and uh, we every so often someone will get, have a little bit too much to drink and they'll attempt a Freddie Mercury song, and the only person, certainly, that we know who's ever landed one is, is Sam Toy. 
um, formerly of this parish. But honestly, they they are very, very hard songs to sing. He has a huge range, incredible tone to his voice. And it's going to have to be someone who has the pipes for it. And I mean, out of the out of the list of, of names, even the very top end of that list, there are very few people who can who can deliver those songs. Amidst the Aidan Gillens and Tom Selleck's <laughs> and Ross Kemp's of this of this long list of bookies' favourites, there isn't one name which I really think might be an option, which is Dominic Cooper. I saw him in The Devil's Double, where mm-hmm. he plays um, Saddam Hussein's son and obviously his double. And he wears the, the the kind of slightly you know crooked teeth that Freddie Mercury. He just really for me was kind of like a doppelganger. If you haven't seen that film, it's worth just 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 seeing what you think. I'd love to know because I I, I thought there was a real physical resemblance. He's also got. We've seen him in um, one or two. Mamma Mia. Yeah, I was going to mention <laughs> Mamma Mia because that could be that could be an issue with the singing. Tomorrow, Drew, you can see he's, you know he's got a real stage presence and he can do all of that stuff. So he might be worth okay. looking at him potentially. But you're right; I think you made you know good point with the song. Without the songs, you've got no movie. You've got no movie, and it's it's fascinating. I honestly think this is going to fizzle into nothing if they don't change their mind. I think they shouldn't do it at all. I would hate to have a half-cocked story of Queen. I'm sure that Freddie Mercury would also not like a half-cocked version of his story. Uh, Nick, what have you got for us, newswise? I have Gravity. Yeah, Warner Brothers has started releasing a bunch of clips and uh, the one that's got everyone's attention is this two-minute uh, long single-shot clip of everything going wrong and the camera's kind of spinning around and Sandra Bullock getting drifting off into space. Sandra Bullock? Sandra Bullock. Steady. They showed uh, some of this clip. They showed, I think, a, a slightly longer version of, of the same section um, at Comic-Con at the weekend during the Warner's panel and it looked absolutely astonishing um, and it was it was kind of interesting what they were saying about the film there Alfonso Cuaron was talking about the fact that this has taken him four and a half years to make he thought it'd be a quick project that he could do you know very few moving parts you know only two cast members whose faces you see and that's obviously Bullock and Clooney um, so he thought it'd be kind of a quick thing but then when they started to develop it they realised very very fast that the technology didn't exist and they had to figure out a way to sync the cameras with the movement of the actors to give the impression of weightlessness because you know the other option which is the vomit comet which of course the the hyperbolic plane that they used for um for apollo 13 you only get a few seconds of weightlessness every time so it's it's rather difficult for a film of this duration um in space he's he's such an interesting filmmaker Mm. Alfonso Cuaron I'm reading the Nick Rogue book at the moment he talks about how as a director when he was on set and he was working with say a production designer who was building a set and he had to get you know the camera to dolly or whatever through a particular particular setup he wanted it to be difficult he wanted to have a pro- a challenge to overcome it wasn't like i know how to do this he yeah. wanted it to be difficult and i think alfonso Cuaron in common with like james cameron neil blumkamp those sort of directors like to have technical challenges mm. you know and that you think about children of men he had the camera rig on the car for that one take incredible one take shot and this seems to have similar similar kind of issues of um sort of technical technical yeah. virtuosity which which is really exciting. I can't wait to see this film. He actually talked a bit about that shot at Comic Con as well on the Visionaries panel. He 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 said that it was uh, it was something that basically took them. They would it would take half a day to do one take of that shot, and they only and they they nailed it on the afternoon of the last day at the location. They had to leave the location the next day. Warner's kept sort of saying nervously to him, "Do you want to do you want to do some cover?" coverage mm. and, and he just kept saying no we're going to get it we're going to get amazing. it amazing when you think about how many moving parts there are in that particular yep. it's just and similarly here there's a 19 minute I think one shot se- sequence and we're, we've just seen tiny tiny snippets of that so far so 
uh, I'm very stoked. It's this kind of movie that restores my faith in Hollywood that studios can go, right, let's give it a go. Of course, it's held by the fact it's got big name stars, Sandra Bullock and Georgie Clooney. I really hope this does well. I hope it's successful as its own film and I hope it is successful in the box office because we need more of this kind of yeah. out there, I can't believe mm. you're doing this stuff that, that makes money. Mm, yeah. My news is, uh, after me trying to champion Hollywood, uh, we have Remake Central this week. We have a bunch of stuff that may or may not make you happy. The Butterfly Effect will be back. I get a reboot. It's already been rebooted kind of twice with uh, director dvd or director tv sequels about Ashton Kutcher's character who has a traumatic experience in his younger life and he finds a way of going back and uh, affecting what affected him which causes ripples that affect the future and the present and it's all very wibbly wobbly screen and kind of lame and scary and more lame than scary so that's getting another crack of the whip uh, Eric Bress who is the co-writer and director responsible for the original effort has been asked again to and I use the word rehash maybe not fair rewrite this concept for a new take. I mean, less than 10 years since the original, right? I know. Spider-Man fans have a similar <laughs> problem here. But yeah, it's it's a funny one. I don't think anybody really holds it to their heart that close, so they won't care that much. But really? This it's, is the one they're doing? It's the most meta idea ever, isn't it? It's the butterfly effect of the butterfly effect. That, you know, they made this film and now they're going to do it again for no obvious reason. What if, what Why? if that hadn't happened? What if they go back in time and make sure the Erase first one hadn't it. happened? Hmm. It's crazy. Although people really like the first one, don't they? So the first one is I, I, I'm being slightly facetious about people not holding too close to their hearts, but yeah, there there are some people with soft spots for it. I watched it reasonably recently on TV, and it's just it's it's kind of fun in its in its stupid way. The concept is more intriguing than its delivery than what it was actually made as. I'll swear, Bloodsport and Kickboxer, two JCVD classics, uh, are being freshly re-kicked. And for me, this is kind of sad, but I know, I know why they're doing it. They're both cracking movie titles. So I don't think they even have to do anything to do with the original movies. They just take Bloodsport, take Kickboxer. If they don't have the dance in Kickboxer, I'll be pissed off. But otherwise, they can do what they will with this for me. As long as they leave Sudden Death alone. Well, some things are just untouchable, aren't Sacred, they? Yeah. <laughs> sudden Death. Yeah. I love that movie. That and Citizen Kane. Uh, for what it's worth, Bloodsport currently has V for Vendetta director James McTeague uh, attached to it, whereas 1989's Kickboxer is getting a fresh coat of cine paint, courtesy of Hong Kong director Stephen Fung, who won festival acclaim for Tai Chi Zero. I've never seen that. I know little of it. Uh, but if it's acclaimed, then brilliant. To be clear, these are different studios, so they're unlikely to cast the same person in the JCVD role. You would have thought so, unless, of course, they cast JCVD, which would be incredible. <laughs> but if he doesn't have cameos... And in those cameos, he doesn't dance. Then yeah. I'm upset. He should just be doing the splits in the background of every shot. Every shot. Every time a really fierce kick to the noggin occurs, he's in the background going, ow! And splits. I don't think he can get out of the splits anymore. He can probably get into them still, but... With a winch. With, you need several, several kind of gophers to help him get out. Very harsh. Also out this week, we should mention, uh, is the new issue of Empire magazine, which is very exciting. We have um, a Comic-Con special. Um, Amazing Spider-Man 2 is on the cover, uh, looking pretty darn shiny. Um, and and also Electric. We've got Gravity in there. We've got X-Men, Days of Future Past, Captain America 2, a great piece on Godzilla, uh, Robocop, basically kind of you name it we've also done a TV special which was one of your babies wasn't it Nick uh, yeah we, we talked to Joss Whedon for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. we talked to Orsi and Kurtzman for Sleepy Hollow which is the maddest sounding new TV show coming it's uh, essentially Sleepy Hollow but with Ichabod Crane battling the Headless Horseman in contemporary New York 
If you uh, haven't seen the sizzle reel for that, by the way, look it up online. It's amazing. It has the exchange. A cop says, put your hands on your head. And the other cop goes, he hasn't got a head, which is my favourite bit of dialogue in a TV show. And uh, lots of other stuff, uh, Sherlock. And uh, yeah, we did a big Jurassic Park <gasps> thing where we talked to every single cast member, pretty much. Wow. Goldblum, Dern, Neil, and Dodgson, which I was most excited about. And uh, even the guy who made Mr. DNA. So if you like Jurassic Park, you'll enjoy that. I know I'm biased because I really love dinosaurs. I mean, because you're my brother. But it's awesome. Jurassic Park feature is just fantastic. Also, let's not damn this with faint praise. If you love Jurassic Park, you will love that feature. I was one of those features that I, and this is me just giving you a big smooch on the mouth here, Nick, metaphorically. <laughs> but it was one of those features that as I read it, I went, I'm going to read that again. And how much work went into it as well. Even if you hate Jurassic Park, I'm going to go ahead and say you'll love this feature. <laughs> That's some even, big praise. Even if the very mention of Jurassic Park makes you come and hives, <laughs> this feature will rock your world. You're very kind. And we, we did build an actual uh, reel to scale Jurassic Park to help us uh, with the feature. So. Yeah. Wow. And bred some dinosaurs. I didn't mention that to you guys, did I? But, yeah. Where did you put the helicopter? That's a difficult question to answer. One of my favourite bits is where you've gone through and you've sort of myth-busted the things that just couldn't, couldn't really, didn't really make sense in the movie. One thing I don't understand, you maybe clarify for me, is like, can a mosquito actually get its tiny little thing through the hide of a Tyrannosaurus, for instance? Maybe it could, like, you know, bite its lip or something. <laughs> Elysium, Neil Bombkamp's Elysium, that's in there. Yeah, we mentioned that already. Rush is in there. We've got a, a piece on how they shot the race sequences in Rush. We've got uh, Terry Gilliam's amazing looking new film, The Zero Theorem. Uh, we've got Chloe Moretz talking about Carrie and much more. Um, we've got a bloody crossword. You love crosswords. It's fantastic, basically. Just pick it up. You'll, you won't regret it. Do we ask her if she's called Chloe Moretz or Chloe Grace Moretz? Or... Yes, both of those. Both those things. Yep. Okay, good. Okay, um, it's time now uh, for another interview. So let's welcome James Mangold, who brought us Walk the Line and recently reunited with his um, Kate and Leopold star, Hugh Jackman, for a little movie called The Wolverine. So a bit of a change of pace for the pair of them. Uh, Nick and Phil talked to Mangold about the challenges of bringing the metal-boned mutant to Japan. There's going to be a lot of fan chat around this movie, and I have to start with one of the real hot-button serious questions. Is it ninja or ninjas for the plural of ninja? I have said ninjas, like as in get me twenty ninjas over to camera left. <laughs> but the uh, but in that way, I don't know. That's a very good question. Ninja or ninjas? It makes sense to me that actually it's not with the S. Yes. So you haven't had any quarrels with Hugh over this? No, no. Hugh and I can't manage to get in a quarrel. We try, but it doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty cool to direct ninja or ninjas. There are many pinch me moments I've had making movies, and certainly this film is one of them. Um, running around the streets of Tokyo um, with Hugh Jackman and Tao Okamoto in a van and jumping out and running. We, we uh, what I, Let me give you a little background. One of the things that's difficult in Japan is shooting um, on location. It's very hard to close streets. So eventually we just resorted to getting in a van and jumping out with a handheld camera and running like hell through the streets yeah and and it works great i mean it looks i mean part of it is you know the aesthetic we were after in the film is something more real so what we were allowed to close or what we you know um reasonably didn't look good enough so we just decided to kind of go pirate style and it was a little amazing being a film you know, at the budget level, a tentpole movie that we are, and that I found myself back in a van running out and stealing shots. <laughs> but the uh, it is awesome. We had William Freakin in this booth not that long ago talking about making the French Connection and the big car chase sequence and the yeah. French Connection. No permits, no nothing. Just rocked up and did this lethal, you know, stunt work. 
guerrilla style. Yeah. And you're well, saying that tradition is still alive and well. It's not only alive, but actually, I don't know if you read it, but uh, French Connection is one of the pictures I talk about a lot in terms of a reference, a touchstone for me on this film. Um, when I make movies, when I sit down and make a movie, I think for me, one of the most dangerous things is to is to start thinking about pictures that are so similar. I think that, that what's really useful is to come up with template or like what I call North Star movies that are odd or, or you know, um, that aren't what you think in terms of, you know, this picture, um, French Connection, Outlaw Josie Wales, number of Westerns, obviously samurai pictures have some relevance, but then this is a modern day movie. So they're again, not totally relevant, meaning I don't ever want to get in a moment where I'm kind of like forcing myself to watch a picture that's so much like my own that I end up making an echo of the other movie. I like somehow trying to tap into something earlier otter you know when you brought up girl interrupted it was the wizard of oz that i'd watch all the time as i was making that film the musical from the 30s when you're doing a movie like this set in japan is it a challenge i'm not sure this is the right phrase getting the levels of japaneseiness right it is a concern i mean immediately you know um the example i'd give to everyone in my crew would be a musical one which is i didn't want a film where the moment you found yourself in japan it was like dunk, 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 dunk. you know you didn't want you didn't want that kind of hollywood um, you didn't want the music you'd listen to at a bad Japanese restaurant to start playing. And um, any more than going to Italy, you want to hear, you know, crooners in Venice. But the, there's just cliches and cliche ideas about the culture that I, I thought we should make an effort to avoid. Was there ever a scene where Logan does karaoke? Uh, no, there was <laughs> never. Um, there was never even a suggestion of such a scene. Oh, the but movie the, could have ended with that. Uh, kind of yes, uh, on a tail credits bar. special egg scene. <laughs> uh, the um, but no, we didn't do karaoke. A Johnny Cash track. You just got just it. You got it. Yeah, I guess that's the only live twice paradigm, isn't it? You kind of want to avoid some of the things that you look back on now with a bit of a wince. <laughs> you want it, yes, and you also want you. Um, well, in in terms of humor on this film, it was very important to me. You can't have everything. And if we wanted the tone a little darker, and, and I wanted it darker, and I also wanted to get inside Logan more, you can't do that and make a joke every three seconds. <laughs> so, um, you know, yeah. when I spoke, one of the first things I did with Hugh was to suggest that he watch Outlaw Josie Wales, the Clint Eastwood movie, because I thought that was very much the tone I wanted him to have in the picture. And, um, and I knew a picture was worth a thousand words in this case. And, you know, and Clint is funny in that film. But dry, simple, scary, funny. Not, not, not a not a one liner, a glib one liner every three seconds. So that was a little shift for Logan. Although he does have a great line where he says, "You have ten words." Oh yes, we, no. It's not that we removed all humor, but that we um we we use it we use it sparingly and I hope hopefully effectively. There's a lovely scene when the 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 pair of them on the run check into. A love hotel and they're different themed rooms indeed <laughs> were there any other theme rooms that you didn't quite make the final cut well if you look closely at the when you get the home video you can look at all the pictures there's some truly interesting rooms um, we we had a lot we spent a lot of time the production designer and i debating the different rooms we should ultimately um, offer. What I think is so amazing about Japanese culture is that on one side they're so buttoned up and on the other side the first thing you encounter once you're there is the amount of interesting sexuality going on in, in Japan. Fantasy hotels where you can go, which are not uncommon where you can go and, and check into a you know luau room or a Mission to Mars room or a dungeon room or a Star Trek room or a um, it gets... Uh, 
the playfulness is really rewarding. And in a way you go, you wonder what it's like. I, I have no idea to be, to be in that culture where on one side they're kind of, you think, oh, they're kind of square. And on another side you go, not at all. <laughs> I went to Tokyo myself a few years ago and I, at one point I saw a man, or it might have been a lady, dressed as a giant green crab. Ah, I, yes. What was the weirdest thing you saw? <laughs> <laughs> well, this whole tradition of sexy maids, that are, there's billboards all over Tokyo right. offering you these kind of cleaning girls in miniskirts that are look uh, or look like they're dressed to go to, to, to school. I don't know which the strangest is, but the, <laughs> there's a lot of experimentation and they're very colorful with it. But they seem also very healthy about it, meaning they keep it in the world of fantasy. I'm not so sure about that giant crab ah, guy. <laughs> yeah. The giant crab seemed a little less <laughs> healthy. A little less clean. Are there any Easter eggs or little little kind of things layered in the film that you should get people to look out for? Uh, I mean, the simple answer is yes. I think the movie's laden with meaning, meaning if you're watching closely, there'll be a lot of things you pick up. And certainly there's, um, it wasn't without, uh, I'm conscious that people are expecting a little something at the end, mm-hmm. shall we say. Just quickly, James, I wanted to take you back to a student film you made called Barn, which ah. I was just reading about. It sounds fascinating. It's about a boy who is eaten by a barn. Is this trapped? Story? Yes. There's a. He's. A, it's a, about a family that's moving into a new property and has the idea to you know raise the barn. R A Z. The boy goes wandering into it, and the barn basically tries to seduce him and keep him from uh, the boy's. The boy's missing a mother; his mother's died, dead. So the uh, so his mother, the barn, affects the persona of his dead mother to try and keep him from killing, killing it. And um, and the kid plays with matches, so ends up actually the twist ending is he ends up pulling out the fire and scaring the crap out of the barn and escaping. But the uh, you said the Wolverine got darker, but it sounds like you started. Off. I started dark. No, I started dark. I mean, you're talking to a kid. I was just reminiscing. My dad took me to see Taxi Driver when I was like 11. So uh, and I'm a big Raul Dahl fan, and you can't actually be you know as a kid. My uh, I was just reading these books to my kids and. They're dark. They're dark, beautifully dark. Darkness in and of itself isn't uh, bad for kids. It's it's actually chaos that's frightening. I mm-hmm. think that I think knowing that there's dark forces and forces against them is fine. And even knowing there's something delicious and fun about a little bit of darkness isn't bad. Mm. You're right. Roald is a great example of that that balance. Yes, absolutely. As a, we've got to almost draw to an end shortly, but. I just wanted to put this to you, not in, in an ambushy way, but I just think it'd be a nice place for right, you I'm, to kind I'm of in a crouch. finish. <laughs> but when you came in to talk to us prior to Night and Day, somebody asked you, if you were offered a superhero movie, which superhero would you like to bring to the screen? And you said, which ones are left? I don't mean to be cheeky, but the truth is there are so many films made of so many dominating characters that there's some truth in, in, in my response. I wondered how you saw it now, having having put James Mangold to fight, I guess, Wolverine in a sense. Yeah, well, it was. it's interesting because when it wasn't long after that that this film came my way, and I was extremely skeptical. I loved Hugh and made another film with him, and I, I had great respect for the X-Men and the Wolverine as a character, but my anxiety was I really did not want to make... Look, I'm a comic book fan. I grew up reading comic books, reading Marvel and DC comic books religiously. Eight times out of ten, I don't think the films live up to the comic books, but also I don't think they, I think they miss out on the one energy that I think was in them, which is that they're more adult. The The movies tend to be more infantile and the, the comic books tend to be more grown up. And that what for me I didn't want to participate in was a kind of, these films, these comic book films have become a way to move 
Happy Meals, action figures, lunch boxes, stickers, coloring books, but they're not as much sometimes a piece of art themselves. And the idea of spending two years on something that's really a marketing vehicle seems really uh, empty to me. And so what was so unique about this film was A, my friendship with the star, which led me to believe, rightly, um, that I'd have my way, that I could actually try and do something and have his backing. But also the setting in Japan, the fact that the movie tr- took this character and traveled him to someplace new, someplace where, I don't know if the studio anticipated or not, but, you know, a third or half the language spoken in the movie is Japanese, we'd get a chance to make a different kind of film. And that the new locale would almost give me an umbrella, a safety net, under which I could try and make a different tone and one that wasn't so preoccupied with selling as much as just exploring who he is. Was there talk of a Stan Lee cameo? There was never, there was never a moment. I mean, I'm not, I get to work immediately, so it's not like I go around because that stuff to me is always a bother meaning I have nothing against Stanley you love the man but I don't sticking people in your movie is always more about a gag that takes me out of the movie than puts me in it so I'm uh, one once I'm on a picture I'm 100% about making this world real no stunt casting no nothing other than uh, real Mm. so that wasn't Stanley in the bear costume Uh, well you caught me there (laughs) (laughs) thank you James nicely done busted thanks James And finally, last, but by no means least, we have time for just one more interview, and it's a very quick one. We have the Wolverine himself, Hugh Jackman. He's famed as one of the nicest and most frequently shirtless men in cinema. Jackman is now on his sixth outing as the mutant called Logan and is still the best there is at what he does. Uh, Phil and James spoke to him last week. We are officially, I think, your last interview in this country. That's true. So no pressure. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, thank you, guys, for your support. Uh, I saw two... Yeah, there's a bronze gold one. Gold one, right. I thought it was gold, bronze. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. Bronze, bronze, yeah. And yeah. We've, got, uh, we've got the Japanese one as well, where we did Empire in Japanese. Oh, really? On the top, which was quite cool. I had not seen that. Yeah. We went around a number of uh, Japanese restaurants to make sure that it actually <laughs> said Empire in Japanese, uh, which is quite funny. But right, let's kick off. So, we would like to welcome to the Empire podcast, the legendary Mr. Hugh Jackman. How are you? I'm really good. I've never been called legendary before, but thank you. You've got a journalism degree, haven't you? I do. Does this make you particularly judgmental of insipid questions? Yeah, it makes me more empathetic, actually. Oh. <laughs> yeah, no, it does, because I remember the last course I did in uh, in journalism was ethics in journalism. And they went through, what would you do when you first had a job and the editor sends you out on a death knock, right, which is when someone's died, you have to go to the family's house, uh, so someone's died in a car accident, and they say, do not come back into this office unless you have a photograph and people steal them off pianos and things like that. And I remember thinking, I just would not be good at this job. And so I constantly feel when someone asks me about a question, I give them the benefit of the doubt and think, your editor said, do not come back into this office <laughs> unless you find out if they're going to have baby number three, something wow. like that. So it's 14 years, isn't it, Wolverine? Thirteen or fourteen? Yeah, it's it's over thirteen. Yeah. Is it, is it weird to think that you wouldn't have become this character which you've basically defined mm. if it hadn't been for Mission Impossible Two? Yes, it is weird. Even weirder that before I started filming, I had a, a gig down in Australia opening the Fox Studios there, where Dougray Scott, who was the original uh, Wolverine, was cast as Wolverine, was shooting Mission Impossible Two, and it was their schedule that went over. Mm. So at this opening, they had all these actors and celebrities, and they mentioned us one by one. And I didn't know he was going to be there. And we were in a big line and they said, and Dugray Scott. And Dugray Scott stepped out of the line to do one of those. And as he did, I sort of looked down 
And as he stepped out, he looked down at, to me and he goes <laughs> like that. And we had a good chat and he was, I said, I'm sort of sorry how this has worked out, man. And he goes, oh, that's showbiz. This is a great role. Go and crush it. It was very cool. So I gather Russell Crowe recommended you for the role of Wolverine originally. Do you have to buy him a beer every time you play the character? Yeah, at least. <laughs> at least a beer. Actually, he's been a great friend to me and given me good advice and mentioned me for more than one role. Australia was another film that when it didn't work out with him, he said to Baz, you know, you should look at Hugh. So, yeah, I've come off the bench for Russell quite a bit and uh, I'm very happy to. And have you ever returned the favour? When they come into me, they've been to Russell first. That doesn't really ever happen where I say, listen, there's this guy called Russell Crowe. Um, I know he's won an Oscar and all, but you should think of it. That, that, it doesn't work around that way. Well, you've, you've essentially inhabited this role and you're so associated with Wolverine, but you said once on Jay Leno that you wanted to become an actor to play Jason Voorhees in Friday the 13th. Yes. Was this a joke? Were you serious? No, not when I was younger because I, I actually saw... I haven't actually seen 10, the last one. I didn't, or there's one, even one after that, I think. I haven't seen Jason it. Jason X, isn't that the one based in space? Is it? it might be the one in space. I mean, I've seen the them all. Even number three, the 3D one, you know, when the eyeball comes, <laughs> and you, I slowed it down on my video recorder. I used to love them. Um, and, and the amount of really good actors who've been killed off in the Friday the 13th movie. I used to watch every movie, every one of them, uh, all of them, Halloween's, Salem's Lot, uh, Shining, Poltergeist, Exorcist. The horror nut, essentially. Yeah, because I'm an 80s kid, so the VCR machine was coming in and that was it, just over and over again, you know, scare the crap out of each other. What, was there a film, a particular film? Oh, the Exorcist for me. Yeah. Growing up, that was the one that really sort of freaked me out because we, my, my family's religious, so... It really had that freaky, this could happen, and there was something. And plus it was sort of so outrageous too and really crude and vulgar. I mean, as a teenager, I loved yeah. it. So one of the things we all love about Logan is he's got, he's got this fulsome beard um, and kind of sideburns situation. It hasn't really changed much. I, he doesn't strike me as the kind of metrosexual type who'd spend a lot of time um, kind of grooming himself in the morning. Do you have any kind of tips of, uh, of, of maintaining that facial furniture? It's funny you mention that because we had an argument on set the other day about where the mutton, because it kind of has changed a little bit, where the mutton chops stop and whether it's starting to look like a beard or mutton chops. And But basically the shortest time possible is best. The worst, the p- hardest part of playing this uh, is the hair. And on this movie I was like, can we please make it shorter? I said, we are <laughs> literally putting... We are responsible for the hole in the ozone layer. There's so much hairspray. It's getting ridiculous. I Several times I heard crew members go, oh, Elvis is in the building. You know, it was getting kind of crazy big. And there was this weird inflation. The, the movies have just got bigger and bigger. And there's a shot in X-Men 2 because I was shooting Van Helsing and I had long hair and I had to go and do a pickup shot where there's, they put a wig on top of the long hair. And it's the very first scene in X-Men 2 where I encounter the wolf. I cannot, I look, I think I look like one of the cone heads. <laughs> if you check that out, it is the most ridiculous shot you've ever seen. Amazing. Yeah. It's a sort of headdress. Yes, exactly. Um, actually, speaking of which, you've, you've said before that Pharaoh in Joseph was a role that you'd, uh, you'd wanted to play. Is that right? And you have seriously, seriously done some uh, research. No, I sang that song at a kind of, at an amateur musical society. No, my son really wanted me to play that because my son was really into it. We watched that movie and over and over again and he was a mad Egypt fan in everything mm. e- Egyptology-wise. So 
Yeah, I don't know if I stay up at night thinking I would have played the Pharaoh. Well, because obviously the narrator's the one who has all the juice in that show, so. Right. Yeah, you know, God, mate, oh, man. <laughs> well, <laughs> the narrator and Joseph, both. Okay. Yeah. You know. I know you're a very keen sports fan, and you were there at the, uh, at the, uh, the test match at Lords, I gather. There on the first day. Good day of cricket. In a losing cause. Well, you know, we are underdogs, which is, feels very strange for me because I think ever since 86, for a long time, we were strong. And, and in the last, well, probably almost 10 years now, England have sort of had the edge. I mean, there was that one series in Australia where I'm sure you guys want to forget after that. But I remember being there in 2005 at Lords. Last time I was there, I went back to the sheds when we won that first test. And uh, Pigeon, Glenn McGrath, um, was going, mate, we're going to roll these blokes. We're going to roll. I can feel it. I see it in their eyes. And then he rolls, instead of rolling his blood, he rolls his ankle. And you remember? He was out for the rest of the series and we lost. Hugh, can I be honest? I think you make an amazing Murph Hughes or Dennis Lilly. That's I used to love doing Dennis Lilly's action. I used to let, when I was bowling. You know, a movie about Dennis Lilly? The, yeah. bi- the biopic? The biopic. <laughs> I haven't a- had a big moustache in a film. <laughs> amazing. Yeah, thank you. I'm going to do that. Yes. It says on Wikipedia that you're a big fan of Norwich City. Now, you know that their mascot is the Canary and you're a Wolverine. Is that a bit of a sort of food chain issue? (laughs) I've often said it's not the most intimidating emblem for a a team. (laughs) I mean, we are the Canaries. It just somehow doesn't instill fear in the opposition, I'm sure. Not massively. No. But you can get great eggs at Carrow Road, I hear. Whatever ever happened to the uh, Bill Bixby biopic that you talked about in the past? No, someone talked to me about it. I mean, mentioned, they've mentioned it to me, but no, that's... Because it made headlines d- a while about that you were going to be Bill Bixby and it was going to be a whole thing. Yeah, if I talked about it, I can't remember, but I remember being asked about it, but uh, I don't know anything about it. Oh, no, right. I don't even know if there's a script, is it? Oh, I don't imagine so. Well, right. in fact, I think TNT is now doing a TV movie, but Are this they? was quite a few years ago that you right. were linked to this. Oh, yeah. But it might have just been the internet, you know, being yeah. the internet. It was the internet being the internet. But I'm going to watch that. Bill Bixby on TV. Yeah, he had a very interesting life. Yeah. He did. did he? Yeah, yeah. He was, he was interesting. Oh, it was all tragic and it was all, probably a bit of a downer, to be honest. But right. he did uh, Courtship Fetty's father and The Magician. He's done loads of stuff, actually. Yeah, right. Okay. you got to do Dennis Lilly first, though, right? Yeah. Dennis well, Lilly. I just can see that being huge in America. This summer, watch a man, Lillian Thompson with a moustache, destroyed countries. <laughs> Amazing. Now, before, before we are forced to let you go to the airport and flee this country yes. and our lovely weather, obviously comics is now something you're quite close to. Are you a gamer? Do you play video games at all? I know the games are incredible. Like, I know TV at the moment is incredible. Mm. There's such incredible TV on. And I'm one of those people that hates to miss out. And so it's better for me not to know what I'm missing out on, so I don't try. And and weirdly, you know, as a parent with a 13-year-old and an 8-year-old, I expected to be totally drawn and we'd play together. And I bought a few games. Like, my son loves Tintin, so I bought the Tintin mm. game with him. But he's really not that fascinated. He's an outdoor kid. So I'm like, it would be really sad if my son's like, going, Dad, will you stop playing those video games? Let's go outside, you know? <laughs> so I like, give you that's Teach me spin bowling, you know? Just, come on. I go, shut up, kid. <laughs> Let's play another game. Let's play videos. It's only been six hours. You've got to start putting some effort in here. But you know, look, uh, I, I know I would love it because as a kid, I loved all that stuff. And so uh, I'm almost like an addict who doesn't want to touch it. Amazing. Well, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, guys. Love the cover, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, it's time for reviews. Uh, given that we've just spoken to the star and the director, it seems appropriate to start with the Wolverine. So what did we think of this outing? What's in store? First of all, I would say a cautious Thumbs up for this one. It is certainly better than X-Men Wolverine Origins, uh, which, with the best win in the world, and I had so much 
good faith in that movie. I really wanted it to do well. Didn't hit the mark by any means. Too many mutants. Too many mutants. What this does, the Wolverine, this is based on the classic comic book arc from Frank Miller. It is a real treat. Go and buy that book and read it. Um, It'll look great on your bookshelf. This film takes quite a few liberties with that original storyline. It keeps it in Japan and solidly leaves it there. Mm. This isn't a globe-trotting, hey, I'm here, hey, I'm there, there's an exploding car type film. Um, It's actually quite... It takes a lot of its tone from Japanese cinema. Uh, at times in the first uh, first and second acts, it's almost quite ponderous. It's quite lethargic in its mm. own way as it discusses what it is to be a man, what it is to be a mutant, what it is to be immortal or not immortal. Unfortunately, if you were into that, that doesn't last very long and the third act turns into your traditional whack'em, smash'em, bad guys versus good guys comic book movie. So yeah. it's it's a mixed bag, to say the least. So just set it up a little bit for us. So this one, as we've seen from the trailers, Wolverine, his powers, his healing powers are compromised in this film after going to visit his old friend in Japan and being offered the chance to give up his immortality. Yes. Now, it's important not to discuss that too much because the way that happens and... The reason why that happens is kind of a curiosity. Uh, Needless to say, and I don't want to spoil anything too much, he's in X-Men Days of Future Past, so he will be okay, (laughs) fellas. Don't worry too much. But yes, he, he isn't surrounded by other mutants. He's surrounded by this complicated Japanese society where it's mannered and things have to be done in the right way. Funerals must be attended. Bowing must be done. And he is forced on the run with the granddaughter of a recently deceased crime lord. Uh, for want of a better phrase, uh, called Mariko. And it's in part their story as they run away from the powers that be, the the bad guys that be, including Viper, who is a poison-friendly and poison-resistant snake-like lady, uh, played by a newcomer, Svetlana Korchenkova. Korchenkova? I love making sure that I get to pronounce names badly. And in turn, someone else who is yet to be revealed. Mm. Ooh, mysterious. I, I... Didn't like this film very much, as mm. much as that. I've got to be honest. I I really respected James Mangold's intentions with it. I think he wanted to do something different with a superhero idea, and he he kind of he talked a lot about the outlaw Josie Wales as an inspiration for this one. Don't think those two films really stand up in comparison. But you know he's he's got the seventies vibe. I don't know about you, but I just felt like it got dull quite fast. I like the opening where it starts with him in prison camp in Nagasaki and establishes his relationship with this Japanese prisoner. POW guard, camp guard, come later, come in, life. later in life, crime lord. You know, because that's an that's an art that would make an interesting film. How do you go from like, yeah. you know, Nagasaki, where presumably you've been irradiated, to uh, Breaking you know, Bad, really, isn't it? He could, yeah, big time. Well, you know, he's a Japanese POW camp. He probably started bad, pretty bad, and got badder. I'm not sure he's necessarily full on yakuza, the grandfather. Yeah, I say for one of a better phrase. Okay, yeah, because he's he's a billionaire sort of company establishing but- person tycoon but that's the problem i don't know what anyone's doing in this film like i don't know i don't understand there's people that are, you don't know what side they're on and not an interesting oh is he working for it's just like nobody seems to know what anyone's doing you've got like one massive you know we've seen in the trailer the scene at the the japanese funeral yeah. um there's a big battle and there's people like guy on the roof i don't know i still don't know having seen the film what the heck he's doing uh the the viper lady i don't think the superhero elements sat well with the crimey more kind of existential stuff particularly because the third act is stupendously jarring compared it's just tonally doesn't fit with the rest of the film I, I would I would agree the third act didn't work brilliantly for me but I, I think I'm more up on it than you because I, I quite enjoyed 
what the, the 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 bulk of the story does, which is something that I think comics do well and superhero films haven't done previously, which is to kind of parachute a superhero into the middle of a pre-existing drama. Because this is kind of a family melodrama. There's there's tensions between three generations of this family. There are plots within plots and schemes within schemes, and they're all none of them is quite sure of each other. And into the middle of this, Wolverine is dropped, and because he's there, he's kind of a catalyst for sort of yet more conflict and yet more change. And I thought that's really interesting. But I agree, it, it does kind of devolve into superhero mashup um, at the end. Yeah, there is a Sidney Pollock film with Robert Mitchum called Yakuza, which is pretty much the same sort of thing, where he goes and he has a debt of honour to... to And he, he's in this world where he's out of his depth. It does a much better job of, of, of establishing Japanese society. It's much more kind of... Not, not that this film is disrespectful to it, it's just a bit... It plays lip service to it a little bit. Sometimes there's you know there's some funny stuff like when they check in they're on the run and they check into the love hotel and they're giving the the options for the different rooms that they could stay in, you know which is a little bit like seen in Blue Valentine it's like a medieval room that sort of sexy crystal maze options and that's <laughs> funny because it's intrinsically funny for the Wolverine who is quite a you know grave gruff. gruff character to be in absurd situations and I think it should do more with that because he can become quite one note especially after six movies and Hugh Jackman's you know his performance is, is fine and everything he's good but it's just the whole thing is very ponderous I felt that's not to say it doesn't have its moments there will be moments you've seen the sizzle reels like there is stuff in there that you'll be going wow that's actually really impressive they've come up with that idea for Wolverine and they've executed that well but it's interspersed in between stuff that maybe you aren't expecting and you're not looking forward to in a comic book movie I think this had the potential of being really quite Mm. something and it has kind of fudged itself I'd be very interested once the movie comes out in the UK to read our comment section often a treat uh, but to get readers reaction on this one it does have a great fight on the top of a train yeah. Which I think would be the best of the year if it weren't for Lone Ranger. I can't decide which one I like. <laughs> In terms of fights on trains, we have been blessed this summer. Yeah, been two very um, good ones. Yeah. One's much faster than the other one. This wins on velocity. <laughs> That's true. The, the other one wins on steam power, though. This has colossal velocity. Um, the uh, the Wolverine got three stars from us. Do look out for the mid-credits Sting, uh, which we'll probably discuss at some future point uh, in this podcast. It may come in handy for a film of next year. Who knows? There is also a news story on it uh, that will be up at the time of this podcast being up, uh, where James Mangold talks about that credit sting. So if you listen to this podcast, jump onto the internet and then look at our website and you'll see it there. And it will be all spoiler warned if you happen to glance upon it extra info there there's a let me just clarify there's a there is a really good film here that we wait that, that could have got out it's a bit long mm. it's a bit slow for me. fair enough well they got three stars which is still a recommendation from us uh, next up and also as aforementioned we have Frances Howe which is the story of a 20-something New Yorker played by Greta Gerwig and she has to deal with some uh, personal crises but keeps her optimism isn't that nice Phil it's lovely <laughs> it's lovely I want to see this film again. It's quite, you know, in comparison with Wolverine, it's short and sweet and it moves along and it, you know, at a skip, really, because Greta Gerwig brings, if you've seen her in um, Whit Stillman's Damsels in Distress last year or again with Noah Baumbach, who's now her partner as well, um, in Greenberg, where she's the kind of yin to Ben Stiller's incredibly gloomy midlife crises-stricken yang. Um She's, she just brings a real effervescence to everything, and that's kind of the crux of this, that she's this character who's, you know, a, she's now past the point in her life where she, she should be quite as kind of mixed up and, and directionless as she is. Ostensibly, she's a dance teacher, but she's kind of 
you know, not really making the progress she'd like to. Um, and it's it's sort of, I don't know what would be what what's the kind of women equivalent of a bromance. I think honestly, is- a womance doesn't sound <laughs> right, but it's kind of like it's her and her. They describe themselves, I think, as like a like a lesbian couple that don't sleep together anymore. Almost her and it's uh, Sting's daughter, Mickey Sumner. Um, who plays Sophie, who's her best friend, and it's kind of their relationship, and it's got it's got a lovely, balanced friendship, and then and then Mickey, she starts seeing a guy who's a banker, and she gets serious in her life, and that just points that just underlines the fact that Greta's really a little lost in hers, and uh, then she tries to find a new, you know there's scenes where like she'll try and find a new friend and and do all the kind of play fighting and and weird stuff that she did with Sophie, and the other the other girl will just be like what are you doing why are you punching me it's just weird so it's got lots of little, lovely kind of observational stuff and people are comparing it with you know Woody Allen and and the French New Wave uh, and like along with Hal Ashby those are obvious reference points but Noah Baumbach does his own thing I think it's not fair to, to compare too much there is a little bit of Annie Hall in, in, in this character at times a bit of Girls as well it's and yeah of course and, and Adam Driver from Girls is in this yeah. this is another obvious crossover but it's its own thing and um, I really recommend it highly. We gave it four stars, and I'd like to see it again. Um, it's it feels like you know no other film I've seen this year. It's it's fun, and at the same time, it says some serious things about you know young life and relationship, friendships, and uh, you know living in New York. It's a really good New York movie. Also, I should point out it's shot in black and white in a beautiful way. Mm. There are some real delightful moments where you you see Bambach playing with the light. I especially enjoyed. Uh, Sophie Mickey Sumner's glasses, which are these kind of totally super hipster. Yeah, if you if you are allergic to hipsters, avoid the crap out of this film. But she's wearing these metal rimmed hipster glasses, and you can see how we set up shots just so they kind of shimmer. The light shimmers, the almost like kind of ghostly circles around her eyes. And it was it's honestly a, a beautifully shot film, uh, even though I'm sure this didn't cost much more than a pack of peanuts to make. Uh, yeah, no, I mean. You don't need to spend $200 million to make a film that's worth going to pay for at the cinema. And thank goodness. No. I would also say that there's one of my favourite scenes of the year in it, which I don't want to give too much away, but it involves the two characters having a bit of a falling out in a in the bathroom of a restaurant bar. Um, and Greta Gerwig's written about this scene because she did 40 takes of it, and it's quite a, a gruelling, exacting day shooting, and she wrote about it for, I think, maybe the New Yorker magazine? Google it. It's a really interesting piece, and it really breaks down what it's like to be an actor in that kind of situation, working with a director who, you know, isn't necessarily always directing you and leaving you to struggle and work through stuff. It's really cool. Cool. All right, so that got four stars from us, which is a big recommendation. Uh, finally, a quick mention: there's documentary Blackfish out this uh, this week, which looks at the deaths caused by a killer whale in captivity. And yes, both we and the filmmakers are aware that they're not actually fish, so please don't write in. They are, of course, overgrown dolphins. Uh, just very quickly, Phil, what did we make of this? We mentioned Free Willy today. Uh, this is like Capture Willy. It's kind of it's it's about a true life situ- um, documentary about a true life incident at SeaWorld. In which one of the one of the trainers was killed by a killer whale? Something that Rust and Bone also touched on. These killer whales are fished from the ocean as whatever baby killer whales are called, and taken and really just kind of put in these tiny tanks and just kind of left there in the dark and kept in really terrible conditions. So it's kind of like an expose. It's billed as a sort of a thriller in the same way that if people saw the Oscar-winning documentary The Cove about the dolphin slaughter in Japan. Um, it's it's that kind of thing. There's been 
fallout from the movie. SeaWorld, I think, have tried to you know PR their way out of it, but undeniably, killer whales shouldn't be in captivity. They obviously don't belong in captivity, and they're magnificent creatures. They are. There's a clue in the name, almost, isn't there? It's like there's there's a spoiler, an animal with a spoiler for a name. They they are killers, and you know they don't kill humans. But in, if you put one in a you know, in in a detention centre for twenty years, weird things will, will will potentially happen to it. So this is what the film examines. We gave it four stars. If like me, the cove destroyed you, this may do similar things. Yeah. But it's 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 a situation that I think um, director Gabriella Cooperthwaite, I think you pronounce it, um, has examined and should be examined more and more. So go check it out. All right. Also out this week is uh, Hitchcock's Dial M for Murder, which is getting a re-release. And if you enjoyed the 3D and The Great Gatsby, it was apparently inspired very much by Hitchcock's use of it in Dilem so um, go check that out and that's it for this week's Empire Podcast Uh, join us next week for more film related fun when we'll be joined by Percy Jackson's Logan Lerman and we'll be talking about Bruce Willis's latest action adventures in Red 2 until then it's goodbye from Ali goodbye Uh, from Phil goodbye and Nick goodbye and it's goodbye from me we're off to write a Wolverine musical because it just feels like the right time (laughs) 